Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, folks? Welcome to another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. It's good to have you. And I'm going to be playing this very interesting interview. Recorded this not too long ago with a guy named Haywood Gould. It's a pretty cut and dry story about how I got in contact with Haywood Gould. I had just watched the movie Cocktail, starring Tom Cruise. I thought, you know, this is kind of an underrated story. wonder who wrote that. And I looked up and I found this name, Haywood Gould. I went on his website, I got in contact, and we had a pretty in-depth conversation. I think you'll enjoy. This is a guy who's had a lot of experiences in life. He's been a journalist. He was a taxicab driver, a bartender, of course, screenwriter, novelist, film director. We had a lot to talk about. Let's get into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, we're honored to be joined by Haywood Gould, screenwriter, journalist, novelist, director, born in the Bronx, raised in Brooklyn. He's penned the screenplays for many pieces that you know, Rolling Thunder, The Boys from Brazil, Fort Apache, The Bronx, Streets of Gold, and of course, Cocktail. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So tell us, you were born in the Bronx, but raised in Brooklyn. What was your life like growing up? Very happy life. I played ball and ran around the streets. This was in the 50s. I mean, compared to today, it was a very simple life for kids. We didn't have phones or, you know, there wasn't much TV. So we spent most of our time outside, winter, winter and summer. It was kind of a happy life. And tell us about your parents. What did they do? They were uh, pretty left-wing people. My father's proudest moments were during World War II when he graduated from OCS, became a lieutenant in the engineers, and went to the Philippines with MacArthur and built pontoon bridges. And That was the proudest moment of his life. My mother was a, um, a bookkeeper and kind of a secret organizer for uh, some unions in, um, in New York City. This was during the 30s. And uh, I was raised in a very, very kind of progressive, you'd call it progressive today, but it wasn't called that then, attitude. And uh, there, were, there were a lot of books in the house, and I got a chance to read a lot. And my father was a, uh, was a science fiction addict, so he, he subscribed to all the sci-fi magazines of the day, like fantasy science fiction, all those great science fiction magazines. And also, he's also subscribed to the uh, detective uh, magazines. So I read all of them as a kid. I had a good, uh, you know, I just sit around the house and read. That's what you did. If it was too cold to go out or, or, or it was late at night, read those, uh, you know, you read, essentially. What were some of the books that were your favorite? We were assigned books in school in those days, which I, you know, we, we were assigned Charles Dickens. We read Oliver Twist, which you read in the sixth and seventh grade when I was a kid. We read... Silas Marner read Huckleberry Finn, which I know that they're trying not to, they're trying to chase out of the schools now, which is too bad, because it's an easy read, it's a fun read, and it's also a great book. read a lot of those books, and then later on, uh, I became, I started reading uh, the mystery novels that my father had in his library, uh, Raymond Chandler, um, Dashiell Hammett, 
even some of the whodunits. I read uh, all the Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie, which are total page turners. So I really, I really started reading a lot of the mystery that stuff that was around, and you know, did that for a long time. What would you say it is that you look for in a book? Just suspense to uh, to keep turning the pages. You know, just uh, that's all. That's all, and any book should do. It should make you want to keep turning the pages to find out what happens next. If it doesn't do that, if you feel that you're reading it out of some kind of obligation because it's the hot book of the year or because you have to finish it for school, it's not a successful book. The only requirement for a book or a movie or anything is that it keeps you interested and keeps you in suspense. If it can do that, it's succeeded. What about movies? Were you early on a movie fan? Yeah, but you know, you didn't know you were a movie fan back in the day. When it rained, you went to the movies. You couldn't <laughs> do anything else. So you went to the movies. There were two features. There were seven cartoons. There was a newsreel. And, you know, sometimes there was a serial. It was also pretty much most of the time a Three Stooges comedy. So you got there like 11 o'clock and you stayed till 3 or 4. And it was raining. When it wasn't raining, you didn't go. Years later, when I became a film noir addict, and I would watch these old film wars from the late 40s and early 50s and mid-50s, I realized, I said, this movie sounded strange, looked strangely familiar to me. And I realized that I'd seen them when I was 10 years old. Hmm. You know? and, uh, but I didn't know what I was looking at. I was looking at, you know, great film noir. And, and that's what I, because they were the B features on most of the, on all of the bills. So they were the shorter maybe 75 minutes or even less than that sometimes, you know, B-features, and then the then the longer, you know, Technicolor movies, the Burt Lancaster Pirate movies, stuff like that, and the MGM movies were the A-features. And a lot of times, as I remember, we walked out after the B-feature, and when the A, when the A-feature started, we'd had enough. <laughs> um, you know, so um, but, but that, that, that wasn't the case for, um, uh, for the Burt Lancaster pictures. We loved those. But a lot of times we walked out on the technical. But, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was watching these movies, and um, everyone that uh, that was playing, you just watched. That's what it was in those days. You watched what they gave you to watch. And it turns out that what they gave us to watch were a bunch of stone war masterpieces, which we now consider to be masterpieces. Tell me about a few that you consider to be masterpieces. Oh, God, there's so many of them. You mean, um, uh, uh, you know, the ones that everybody agrees upon, you know, out of the past, obviously, uh, Kansas City, uh, Massacre. There are, there are so many of them that, uh, you know, most of them are of a high quality. Some of them are great. But all of them, as I remember, were watchable. They were crime stories, so as a kid, I liked them. And uh, they had... Uh, Beautiful, slinky chicks in them, which I obviously liked, even though I was 10 years, 11 or 12, you know. And um, it just had an interesting kind of a life, you know, nightclubs, um, tough guys, clipped dialogue, beautiful women, uh, all that kind of stuff that even at that age, we liked. And there were just so many of them, I can't really isolate one or two. When did you start to write yourself? Oh, I've been writing all my life. My mother was a freelance typist. She would type, uh, when she wasn't, you know, working as a bookkeeper, she would type briefs for lawyers and she would bring the work home. And I would sit 
in the kitchen because the kitchen was a warm place during the winter. And I would sit in the kitchen and watch her type. I must have been four or five years old. And then when she was finished, I'd get up and sit behind the typewriter and just type. And I wouldn't type words, obviously. I would just sit there and type. And, uh, you know, that's your classic, uh, you know, mother, you know, transmitting cultural values kind of thing. But it's true in my case. And I guess I always wanted to be a writer. So that, that made me want to be a typist. I, guess I, you know, I was typing, not writing, which, you know, some people today probably think I'm still doing. And that's what I did. And then later on, when I got a little bit older, and I learned how to read and write a little bit in the first and second grade, I started writing little stories, typing little stories. And I never really wanted to be anything else. I never wanted to be a, you know, a cop or a fireman or, or a, you know, ball player. I always wanted to be a writer. Didn't really know what that was when I was a kid, obviously. But I found out what it was kind of in high school, learned about writers, and continued to try to be one and wrote. Wrote, um, at this point, probably millions of words. Certainly, you know. And so, so I always wanted to be a writer. So it's something that you, you just, do you feel that it's just natural to you? Oh, it's not natural. It's the hardest work in the world. Hmm. There's nothing natural about it. At least not to me. You know, when they talk to you about how Shakespeare would sit in the weeds and write plays in the first draft and that kind of thing, which turned out not to be true, actually. Hmm. But that's what you heard. That's what you heard in the early days before they started discovering all these folios. It wasn't that way for me at all. I had a problem. I was good. I could write. I could hear what people were saying, and I could appreciate characters. My problem was, you know, constructing a story around people I saw and, you know, how they acted. And that was a problem. So in other words, story construction, narrative construction was a problem for me. I worked really hard on it, and I still do. And just in general, I was very, very critical of my own work. Even as a kid, I remember, you know, crossing stuff out. And, no, it's very hard work, and it's tiring, physically tiring work, too. I understand why writers become drunks, you know, after a day of of, of, of working at something, which essentially, I mean, for most writers, it's kind of frustrating. You don't really nail it. you got to stop. This is at 7 o'clock at night already, and, you know. So you have a couple of drinks to pull yourself out. I mean, that's just the way it is. In my case, luckily for me, I discovered jogging. I used to run my brains out when I finished a, you know, a day's work. So I didn't have to hit the bottle until later, which I did as well. But, yeah, it was extremely hard work, and I found it, and I find it kind of frustrating because the target keeps moving. And you can't really feel it. You've nailed it. It sounds like it's it's just that just it's continued your whole life. The fact that this is something that you do, but it's something that's kind of frustrating. Yeah, I I do it. I couldn't. I can't imagine doing anything else. I do it because I love it. And I certainly have moments when I look at what I've done and I go, Wow, that's pretty good. That's a nice feeling. Uh, you know, when I when I go back or I see a scene in a movie or whatever, or somebody calls me and says, hey, I saw this, this, or I read this, that's really great. It's a great feeling. When I get a, you know, like a like a note from somebody, you know, that they like a book or a movie, that's a great feeling. I feel that I've succeeded in at least giving, which is the real basis of a writer's, uh, you know, uh, function. 
of giving other people enjoyment and entertainment and, you know, that kind of thing. So I succeeded there, and that's a good feeling. Would you say that's what keeps you going at it, is the the moments of satisfaction when somebody enjoys it or when you enjoy it yourself? Uh, well, that's part of it, but what keeps me going is, at this point, although it's been going on for years, I have to do it. I do it five days a week. I would do it more, but um, I force myself really to take days off sometimes because I feel I'm getting a little stale. Let me just stay away from it, get away from it for, for, for you know, for a day or two. That's essentially, uh, I do it because I have to. Mm. I can't imagine not doing it. I've been very sick the last couple of years, and I did it anyway. Drag myself. Uh, and people would say, take a day off, and they didn't realize that I didn't want to take a day off. It wasn't that I was forcing myself, I felt like shit, and it didn't matter. No, I wanted to do it. I had to do it. You know? Hmm. We're talking today with legendary screenwriter Haywood Gould. Tell us about the first thing that you wrote that was published. The first thing I wrote that was published was a newspaper story. I became a, um, I went to work for the New York Post as a copy boy. Luckily got the job because there was a newspaper strike and a lot of copy boys, copy people, <laughs> had uh, left the job. And I met a guy in the street just totally by accident. He said uh, they're hiring copy boys at the post. Now, copy boy, although it was a menial job in which you essentially sharpened pencils and folded, you know, carbon paper and got coffee and, and just ran errands, was a prized job in the newspaper world in the 60s. It was a prized job in the newspaper world until it maybe still is. Uh, and I luckily got it, you know, because I, um, I wrote a letter to the managing editor and he just sent uh, instructions down to the personnel person and they called me up you know, for an interview, and they hired me. That's how things were done in those days. You didn't have to pass 100 tests or fill out 100 forms or meet 100 people. Um, I don't know if I'd have gotten a job if I had to do that. I probably wouldn't have because I was a wise-ass guy, <laughs> smart-ass, you know. But this guy who, who interviewed me, uh, he appreciated that, <laughs> so he hired me. And I became a copy boy for the Post, and then later on uh, they gave me a chance to... Um, they gave me a tryout, but to be a reporter. So I was a reporter for a month. If I if I if I succeeded uh, um, in a month, then I would be hired permanently. You know, union rules. So um, the first story I wrote was a story about a trial in uh, in Manhattan of four kids who had beaten up and stomped a youth worker to death, and uh, I covered that trial. And I wrote a story, and, um, you know, they didn't put my byline on it until later, until I'd written maybe 15 or 20 stories. That's the way they did it in those days. You had to earn everything. But that was the first story that I wrote, even though you couldn't, you didn't have my name on it. And boy, I looked at that thing for hours. <laughs> hmm. You know? And even though I had no byline, boy, I was so happy, man. And then later on, um, maybe two or three weeks later, I went to cover a, uh, a story of a guy up in Harlem who had rats in his apartment. He had three kids. It was a really terrible thing. And we would go, we, we went to his kitchen, and he turned the light off, and all the rats came out, and the kids were there. It was a long story. So anyway, I wrote the story, and they gave me a byline for that. And um, then they hired me as a reporter, which was the proudest day of my life at that point, maybe 
you know, that I made it. Because having a job on a New York newspaper in those days, at the, I was 20, was just an amazing thing. It was, it was the absolute height of the journalism business. And here I was, a 20-year-old wise-ass from Brooklyn, and I got hired. So that was a big moment for me. And those were, that was my first published, you know, stories. What is it like being a reporter? Well, it's the most fun job in the world. You do something different every day. You go out to a story. I mean, there are certain stories like press conferences and boring, uh, you know, uh, uh, stories that you have to cover because of, you know, there's some, some celebrity or some politician is making a crucial announcement. And then you're in a room with 25, 30 other people, you know, reporters. But if you're lucky enough to cover a breaking story, a crime story, uh, anything that's had fire, or a good feature, you know, something that you have for yourself alone that you discovered, um, whatever it might be, it's the most fun in the world. And it's, and it's pretty different every day. So I like that a lot. Would you say that being a reporter influenced some of your screenplays? Totally. My training was journalism, and especially in those days where you where you had to get it right. And it didn't matter what the editorial policy of the newspaper was. You had to get your story right. Facts right, names right, spelling right, age right, everything. And if you made a mistake and it appeared in a different version in some other newspaper, you got crammed by the editors. They hated that. So I learned to get things right. And that's what I tried to do in every, and I still do. And that's what I try to do in everything I write. To Sure, it's fiction, but if it's based on people in a real situation, if it's based on it like cops or, or bartenders, whatever it might be, you got to get it right. How it's done, who does it, all that kind of stuff. You cannot expose yourself to charges of illegitimacy, you know, I've made a mistake there, that's wrong, never happened, kind of thing. That's the fear and the terror of a reporter, really, essentially. What job did you have before you were a reporter? I was a, um, uh, <laughs> a hearse driver and a mortician's assistant. And I drove around picking up bodies in Brooklyn and all over Manhattan, but all over the city, but essentially in Brooklyn and in Queens, because that's where the funeral parlor worked. And I worked at the biggest funeral parlor in Brooklyn at the time. It was a huge funeral parlor. And we had 20, 30 funerals a day. And my job was to go to hospitals or homes and uh, remove, they were called removals, and remove the bodies and bring them to the um, funeral parlor for embalming and and also, I occasionally uh, help the um, people cosmetize, you know, the bodies, make them look better. I would help the, you know, the cosmeticians. I did that for a couple of years. Was that a bad job? That was a great job. That was a fun job. There's no more fun group in the world than undertakers. Why do you say party. that? Well, I don't know why. It just seems to be that way. I guess, you know, I could try to come up with an explanation, but I really don't know why. We'd go out and party, and uh, we got the, we got along really well, and um, stayed friendly. I stayed friendly with these guys way way after I left the business and left the funeral business. It just I guess we we had all these outings we'd go on at those 
In those days, there were restaurants that offered all you can eat for like $10, whatever it was. We'd get like six or seven guys, and we'd go to these restaurants and eat the whole place out. That was our fun. (laughs) (laughs) Until they finally threw us out because we were eating too much. I mean, a simple, innocent, uh, you you know, kind of stuff. But yeah, we would. It was. Um, we had a lot of. I mean, it's a strange thing to say. You're dealing with uh, grief and mourning, and certainly that kind of thing. But uh, we had fun. I mean, I drove a truck, which which I loved doing. I drove a casket truck, which I loved doing, and I drove it through the streets of Brooklyn. And uh, it was like a flatbed truck. You know, that was where we had to pick up caskets. Otherwise, I drove a hearse. And when you drive a hearse doing a funeral, you leave the funeral cortege. So at the age of this point, I was 18 and 19. I, I got my chauffeur's license. I actually, it was a phony, but I got it. And because uh, you had to be 21. I would leave the cortege of maybe 20, 25, sometimes more cars through the streets, onto the highway, and to the, uh, to the cemetery. And that was my big job. And that was my big moment. I was the, you know... I was the leader, like the guy who leads the weed, the, the wagon trains, you know, in the westerns, you know. Hmm. So, I mean, it's like, uh, I know it sounds kind of grisly and, and gory, but I'm telling this is what it was, you know. I mean, I was a kid. I enjoyed driving those big vehicles around, as most kids do, I think. What did you do after being a reporter? Well, I wanted to be a writer. After a couple of years as a reporter, I felt that, I got nervous, and I thought that I wasn't working on my novels, and I should do more of that. And I won't say that being a reporter got old. It didn't get old, but it was the same thing. And I wanted to move on. So I quit, which was not... My family went nuts, and everybody I knew, uh, my girlfriend at the time, went completely crazy. I quit and went off into nowhere land and um, started writing. started writing short stories and trying to, you know, sell stuff. And, you know, saw magazine articles and stuff like that. Because I wanted to, I really, I really wanted to write novels. And, you know, so that's what I did. About what year was this? Uh, 67. 67, 68. What was the experience of going from having an employer, being a reporter, to being pretty much your own boss? Did you like that? I liked it. Um, you know, my kids asked me, what was it like? Did you sweat the rent? Did you sweat this? Did you sweat that? And, I mean, in those days, you didn't need that much money. If you weren't, you know, like financially ambitious, which none of nobody I knew was, nobody. I mean, I was paying $53 a month rent. Food was cheap, especially if you went to eat in Chinatown and places like that, uh, you know. Um, you could stuff yourself for two dollars two fifty. So money wasn't really an issue. I mean, there were moments when I was kind of low, obviously, when I couldn't sell anything. But then I started driving a cab, so I would pick up the slack, you know, you know, driving a cab. It was uh, the only anxiety was writing stuff and trying to sell it, and hoping you could sell it, and getting those rejections slips in the mail and getting to under no being able to recognize them because in those days when you submitted something you submitted the manuscript with a self-addressed envelope so they could send it back to you which they did and as soon as you saw that big envelope you knew you'd been rejected if you saw a little envelope you knew you'd been accepted so right away you knew 
So there was that little anxiety about, you know, getting accepted or rejected. Not little, big. You know, other than that, there was just a struggle to figure out good stuff to write and sell. What kind of influence do you think growing up and uh, being raised in New York had on you? I think it exposed me to all kinds of people, which wouldn't happen, would not have happened if I were raised in a rural or, or suburban area. All kinds of people. Um, I think it made me, even, you know, kind of coming from Brooklyn, it made me, I wouldn't say cosmopolitan, but I certainly understood where a lot of people were coming from. And, and I, uh, I met a lot of different kinds of people, got to know a lot of different kinds of people. Certainly as a reporter, that was even, you know, magnified. So it was a good experience for me. What was the first piece that you felt like, wow, I've really made it now? Oh, I never felt that way. To this day? To this day. Even with Cocktail, all of that? Well, Cocktail's been very successful, certainly for me, and, you know, also financially. So it's been a big success, and, and, and I'm happy about it. But I never felt, when I wrote the book, the book was... Um, got great reviews, but it sold about 11,000 copies, and they didn't, I don't think they reprinted it, and it sold foreign rights, and it kind of went its way, and then um, it was picked up by uh, this very, very smart executive in, in L.A. at Universal, so that started the whole process, but I never felt that I had made it. I don't think you make it. I think it's a, it's, um, if you feel that you've made it, then you're in trouble because you have to keep repeating what it is that you did that helped you make it. And your work falls apart because you're not trying to improve. You're not trying to, you know, strike off in different directions and do different things. So it's very dangerous to feel that you're a success in a funny kind of way, which I never felt. Hmm. Well, that was never a problem for me. <laughs> never. You know. And if I, if I wanted to think about it, uh, if I wanted to feel that way, then I had, you know, the people who hated cocktail who called me a racist after Fort Apache. I had plenty of people hammering on me, so I didn't have to, I never thought that I would, had made it. That's for sure. Well, tell us about writing Fort Apache, the Bronx. What inspired Well, that? you know, I, yeah, I, um, I met these guys. Uh, a movie called Super Cops, this is all ancient history at this point, had come out in the 70s. It was a, it was a true story of two cops who had went around? Who had had an incredible arrest record? They were called the Super Cops, or sometimes they were called Batman and Robin. They were friends. They were partners. And when that movie, it was a success. And when that movie came out, other people looked around, I guess, to do other things. And um, these two cops in the Bronx got to a guy who was a who was a casting agent and said, "We have a story too. We're up in Fort Apache in the Bronx. It's an incredible place. That kind of thing." It's a long story. I won't go through into all the details, but I ended up meeting them. And I had been in the Bronx. I had covered the Bronx as a reporter. I hadn't been there in a couple of years, but I had covered the Bronx as a reporter in the mid-60s. And so I would go up there uh, and uh, ride around with them. And this went on for a couple of months. And I picked up enough kind of anecdotal stuff and information about them and to, you know, to put a story together. Everything in the movie happened, with the exception of the um, uh, of the killing of the guy in the uh, of the killing of the uh, of the John by the hook or that I made up. <laughs> but even that was based on uh, 
a revenge uh, women in, the, in Southeast Asia who took revenge on their husbands by slitting their throats while they were sleeping. So, I mean, I had read something about that. Yeah, so I'm, I put together a story about them and wrote the screenplay, and that was it. Got paid $1,200 and went my way. And they couldn't sell it. This was in 1972, 73. They couldn't sell it. They tried uh, everybody out, and they went out to L.A. with it. A couple of people kind of liked it. Arthur Hiller, the director, kind of liked it. But he wanted to change it, make it a little less hard-edged than it was. And I resisted that because I thought it was phony. And they were going to rewrite me at, at, at one point, but somehow they decided not to, and so Arthur Hiller went away. And it just kind of went nowhere until I showed it to David Susskind, who was a producer in New York at the time, pretty successful TV producer, who I had worked for on a TV show called NYPD. And he read it. This was in 75, 76, maybe 74. I don't, I don't know what the date was. But anyway, he read it, and he said, I'm going to make this movie. And I said, okay, nobody can make it. But he said, I'm going to make it. And three or four years later, he sold his company to Time Life, which is then Time Life, and it's now Time or HBO. I don't, I don't know what it is now. And called me up and said, guess what? I'm making your movie. And he did, obviously. He made the movie. And that's what happened. He put it together. And we went after uh, big stars, you know, McQueen. And then finally, you know, we got Newman. Went up to the Bronx and made the movie pretty much as it was written. And how did you respond when people would say that to you? You're a racist or this was racist. The worst thing in my experience or that you can be called. Racist sexist, homophobe, it's the worst thing you can be called, in my opinion. And I was called it. And it was devastating. And I, I, I felt terrible about it. I also felt, and I'm smart enough to know, there's no defense. If you think I'm a racist, I can't tell you I'm not and prove to you, offer some kind of proof. You just think it. And I'm stuck with what you think. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was terrible. And even though the movie got great response and made money and, and continues to be kind of like a classic and um, people like it and the racist thing has gone away, pretty much, I still remember it. Because for me, from my background, to be called that was terrible. And I looked at what I had done and I said, gee, all I did was write what I saw. Went up to that neighborhood and I pretty much reported what hmm. I saw. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's what was there. I didn't make anything up. I didn't slant anything or skew anything in any one direction or another. You know, so, yeah, it was, it was bad. But now, now that I look at it, believe it or not, based on, you know, what I just said before about success, I'm kind of glad. I'm glad that there was always controversy and conflict around the stuff I did. Because it kept me, I don't want to use the word humble, but it kept me trying, trying to get better, trying to do different things. I didn't, I couldn't sit back and, and, and uh, you know, just, just rest on, the, on my walls and collect the awards. I didn't get any. <laughs> get them now, but I didn't get them then. And so I'm, I'm glad that there was, you know, conflict. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about Rolling Thunder. That was a, sure. Now, that was a script. Is it correct that you rewrote it? Yeah, I rewrote it. I can only tell you my 
part of it. I know John Flynn, who I became very friendly with, you know, gave more detailed explanations about it. I was here, and um, Bill Devane had read Fort Apache, a first draft of Fort Apache, obviously, believe it or not. And he liked what I wrote, and he was he was slated to star in Rolling Thunder because he was very hot. He had played Kennedy in a uh, miniseries called The Missiles of October, which he played John F. Kennedy. And that was a huge success on TV, but it was a huge success. And so they decided that, you know, that they wanted to cast him in this movie, and he committed to it. And um, Paul Schrader, who was also hot, I guess a taxi driver, was, was supposed to write and direct it. And then whatever happened, happened. I'm not privy to what happened. But, but Schrader left the picture. And they needed, and they hired John Flynn to direct it. And they needed a rewrite. So Devane suggested me because he had just read, you know, Fort Apache. So they sent me the script. I mean, I flew out, they flew me out to LA, which was a big deal. I was working as a bartender. I was, you know, I was, had to, had to take a few days off. And I told the owner at the time, I, I got to take a few days off. I'm going to LA to Hollywood. You're like, you doing what? You know, I don't think you believe me. But anyway, I went out, you know, to LA and they put me up in the Beverly Hilton Hotel and I saw Merv Griffin sitting in the lobby. But I was like riding high, you know. Anyway, um, they gave me the script to read. I read it and I, you know, it was um, even, it was a hard script to film. And I could see where they were having problems with it. So I went in the next day. I had a meeting with uh, Larry Gordon, the producer, and John Flynn the director, and I told them what I would do to change it, and they hired me. And so I rewrote the script, gave it to them. They went out. They had a, they, they had to shoot right away. That's why there was a hurry, a big hurry. I think, I think Devane had some other movie he had to do. I don't know what it was. So they went down on location in San Antonio, and I went home. I came back here to, uh, to New York. And then they called me to come down and work on you know, production rewrites. So I went down and ended up staying for six weeks. You know, that's pretty much my involvement in it. I rewrote most of the script, most of, you know, the scenes, you know, I, I pretty much wrote a lot of new scenes and um, rewrote some of the scenes that were there. You know, I was it. didn't think anything of it until I started to screen it. When they started to screen it, it caused an uproar because we had a scene in, in the movie in which, which was brilliantly done, by the way, in which they um, stick Devane's hand in a garbage disposal and cut off his hand up to the wrist, and it was graphically filmed. They got a they got a lamb shank bone, and they used that, and they put a they put a prosthetic kind of hand on it, and it, it looked real. I mean, they, it was brilliantly filmed. It looked real. It looked like somebody just got their hand chopped off in a garbage disposal, and blood came out, and then, you know they did a great job. But when they screened it, people went crazy and freaked out. It, it was just too much. The people, number one woman, threw up and passed out. The lobby, another guy was so upset, he got in his car and drove into a parking meter, <laughs> totaled his car. So, um, and they all sued Fox. 20th Century Fox was the studio on it. They sued Fox, but they were going to sue Fox. So Fox dropped it and gave it to um, AFI, you know, Sam Arkoff, who had more experience in pictures like this. He ended up cutting that garbage disposal scene and, and releasing the movie. And the movie got a nice response. Now, you mentioned that you were a bartender. Yeah. How long did you do that? Well, I was a bartender for from 69 to 80. Toward the end of the 
70s, I wasn't working full-time. When I, uh, when I wrote, when I came back in 78 from Rolling Thunder, I would just cover the shifts for friends of mine. And I wouldn't, I didn't have a, you know, a steady gig and people would call me and I would cover their shifts. But from 69 to about 77, I was a, I was a bartender, a steady, steady bartender. What did that experience teach you? Don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and don't think that you're the same person when you drink, even if you have one drink, because you're not. Hmm. You know, and and um, it changes your personality. You know, when you smoke a joint, you kind of know, okay, I'm high, and you can tell the difference between what you were before you got high and now. Booze is not like that. Especially a lot of the booze that we drink, vodka, you know, it kind of sneaks up on you. And before you know it, before you've gotten falling down drunk and that kind of drunk, your personality has changed. And you're acting out some strange shit, you know? So, you know, I mean, I stood behind the bar and I watched people get loaded, you know, and, and respond in various ways, some good, some bad. You know, and I, I um, saw the human drama, quite a bit of that, in, in the bars I worked in, for sure. It was a good experience, but it got old really fast after I'd been doing it for eight or nine years, and I was happy to leave it. You said the biggest lesson would be don't drink. Well, I, you know, I mean, know what it is when you drink. Just know. Be mindful. That yeah, you're not going to be the same person, that's all. And just know that. I mean, I watch, I sit in bars now, not that much anymore, but I, even today, I watch people get plastered in restaurants and bars. I mean, falling down, shit-faced drunk. And I watch a lot of women do it. And I go, wow, this was something that you was inconceivable because you were living in New York City, and even though you didn't have to get in your car and drive anywhere, you could get a cab or go on a subway, you were going out on a street, which in the 70s was not a good place to go out on at night, drunk. And you were completely vulnerable. I mean, that's sure this is the paranoid side of me, I guess. It's another part of living in New York and growing up in New York, the paranoia, street paranoia. You know, you got to watch yourself. Even back in the day, you had that feeling that people were lurking there and you had to be cool. You know, like I watch people now kind of like staggering out in the street. They're defenseless. It's kind of a strange feeling for me to see that. Because although New York is a very different place than it was, let's say, in the 70s, you know, it's the streets. And you got to be careful. Anyway, so, (laughs) you know, I'm really... You're a good interviewer. You got me showing my paranoid side. You know? <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I just watch people get so fucked up. It's like, wow. And they're spending a lot of money, too. I mean, you know, drinks when I was a bartender, that's a long time ago, but still. Uh, it was a buck and a quarter for, uh, for a uh, kind of speed rack drink, you know, well drink. 25 cents for a beer. You know, when we, when we started charging $2 for, you know, for mixed cocktails like martinis in Manhattan, you should have heard people screaming. Two dollars? 
So now it's like 18 bucks for a martini. Gosh. You know, I, I see the prices that people charge in these bars. I go, wow. I mean, if you go to a bar now, you're going to go for 100 bucks. Easily. You know, between <laughs> a couple of drinks and, a, and eating. Wow. That's a lot. So anyway. <laughs> this experience of being a bartender inspired the book cocktail. Oh, for sure. I met so many great people. You know, because the most of the people I met in the kind of bars that I worked in did not start out to be professional bartenders. As a matter of fact, even when I worked in hotel bars with professional bartenders, I would say that some of them also didn't start out to be professional bartenders or waiters or waitresses or busboys or even cooks for that matter. They had kind of gravitated to these jobs because they needed a day job, you know, to finance and, and to support whatever they really wanted to do, whether it was, you know, in the arts or whatever they wanted to do, or be a stock promoter, anything. So they had gravitated. So they were an interesting group of people. And I wanted to celebrate them, to pay homage to them. And so, and all the different types that I had met and the different bars that I had worked in, and I thought there was a great um, experience and a great saga. And so I wanted to, you know, pay tribute to them. So I, so I, I wrote the book. What did you think of the film interpretation? Well, you know, look, I fought, I, I fought so hard to get stuff in the movie, and there was, um, and you know, a lot of the stuff that they made me write, which I wrote. I tried to change, and I tried to fight real hard to get stuff in the movie. But at the end of the day, you know, the only scene, but at the end of the day, they they saw the possibility of a huge commercial blockbuster starring Tom Cruise, and that's what they wanted. And that's what they ended up getting. And I, I learned a very, very valuable lesson from that because I learned what I, what I said before, that you know, you're not doing this for yourself. You're doing it for the audience and for other people. And the product, you know, the movie that they squeezed out of me and, and, and got themselves to do as well made a lot of people happy and still does. You know? And um, fine. I couldn't, I'm glad if it wasn't exact, the only scene that I ever, that I really, at this point in my life, cringe at, believe it or not, is when Cruz punches the doorman, but he's on his way up to Elizabeth's apartment. <laughs> it drives me crazy to see that. Why is that? Because all my, my old, uh, you know, working class roots, why are you punching a guy who's doing his job? Yeah. You know, juke him. Fake him out, get around him, you know, fake him, go around him so he can't catch you because he's a big, heavy guy and you're an agile guy. And that, that's just, that's the, what I wrote. I wrote that he kind of makes him, he jukes him and he gets around him and goes up the stairs. He doesn't, the idea of punching a guy who's just doing his job, and if he doesn't do his job, he's going to be fired. Yeah. That's the only, the only scene in the whole movie at this point that uh, really makes me cringe. The other stuff I understand, they wanted a happy ending. The book has a kind of a semi-happy ending as well. He marries, you know, the Elizabeth Shue character, and they're going to have a baby in the book as well. So, um, you know, I learned a really valuable lesson from that, that you send this stuff out and be happy if people like it. 
And if they love it, which is the case with this movie, and keep watching it over and over again, and if you keep getting money because of it, shit, man, what's, what are you complaining about? <laughs> and, you know, and they did it. You know, Disney kind of tolerated my tantrums and got me to, to write certain scenes. I remember once Katzenberg said to me, write me a good scene about about in uh, 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 for the uh, for the Jamaican episode where um, you know having breakfast the next day. So Tom and having having breakfast with Elizabeth. So I wrote that scene about how you he just can't figure out how he can make any money, and he wishes he was the guy who made the drink straws and the you know the the, uh, the shoelace stuff. And I wrote that scene on their instruction. And that was a good scene. And it was a scene that showed the desperation or the or the, the the frustration of a guy who wants to make it, but he realizes that there are other people in this world who have quirky ideas that he'll probably never have. You know, after I wrote that scene and after they filmed it, which I think they did a good job, I went, okay, I get it. This is a good scene. They made me do it. I did it, and I'm happy with it. And you know, I mean, I'll take I'll take pride of authorship in it, but the truth is because I wrote it, but they made me. Hmm. And that's the funny kind of relationship that you get into when you're writing a movie. If you have a good producer and a good director and even a good actor on occasion, they'll make you do stuff. And it'll be good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to acknowledge that. So they made me write that scene. And, you know, Katzenberg was very generous. Later on, he says, my favorite scene in the movie, blah, blah, blah. But there were, you know, like I said, I'm glad I wrote it. And I'm happy that people love the movie. And also, it's been good for the book. You know, the book came out of novelization and sold a lot of copies. So that was good, too. And the book got a lot of, you know, attention that obviously you would not have gotten if the movie hadn't been made. And there were a lot of people who wrote impassioned art. I remember I was driving through, I was driving in Vermont at 2 o'clock in the morning, and some all-night radio jazz show was on, or just all-night radio talk show. And some guy called in as a bartender. This was just when the movie had had been released. And the guy called in and said, that book was my Bible. I love that book. <laughs> I loved every word of that book. And now this guy has destroyed his own work. It's an obscenity. This movie, and he went on and on. He's ranting and raving. And I'm driving around, you know, in the dark listening to this guy. Hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, there are people who felt very strongly that I had betrayed the book, and which I think is great. They took it that seriously. What did you think of Tom Cruise's acting in the movie? You know, he was fine. I like Tom. He's a hard worker. He's dyslexic. So we had to sit in the trailer and with his cousin and go over the lines, which he did. We played basketball, the two of us, and we held the court for about an hour and a half until I passed out because I was a smoker and a drinker in those days. I liked him. He had dinner parties at his loft. His wife's name was Mimi Rogers. He's a good guy and a hard worker. And the movie is a success a lot because of him. I can't think of another actor who could have flipped those bottles around. He's a very good athlete, Tom. He can do physical stuff, as you see in, in the movies he does now. And at the time, I couldn't think of another actor who could have been that good at juggling bottles as him. So, you know, I had no problem with him. I liked him. And tell us about. After Cocktail, was there a 
a spark in you to try to to repeat something like that? Yeah, a lot of people, and still do, by the way. A lot of people came to me and said, "Let's do cocktail too. Let's do. Let's pick up, you know, the the uh, cruise character, or let's just do another cocktail." You know, I, I still get that actually. And I didn't want to do it because I couldn't think of, I just, I didn't want to do it because I couldn't think of what I would do, mm-hmm. you know, to make it different. And I didn't want to repeat myself. I have a horror of repeating myself. And so nothing happened. And to this day, like I say, I get, I get calls from people who want to do it this way. Let's make a TV series out of it and on and on. And I can't think of any, I mean, I, I could do something now actually, based on these mega bars that they have, with mega clubs, you know, 1,500, you know, 2,000 people in a club, and all kinds of crazy stuff, DJs going on, and people who work there, and it's a very different dynamic from a bar, just a plain kind of a bar-restaurant environment. So it's different now, but I haven't done it. How did you get involved in directing yourself? Well, I wanted to direct. I, I, I thought I could, um, I wanted to direct. I thought I could use the experience in, in, um, in Cartel to, to, to kind of get Disney to let me direct, and I did. they did. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to be, uh, you know, Raul Walsh, John Ford, uh, you know, those guys. Michael Curtis. I wanted to be the Hollywood guy. I wanted to be the Hollywood director who turned out movies. I didn't want to be Fellini or, or just or Antonioni, one of those guys, or Bergman. Uh, I just wanted to be that guy, that Hollywood guy. So I got a shot at directing. I wrote a script, which which they got uh, Michael Keaton, you know, to agree to be in, and he was, you know, he he was Batman. So, I, and I met him a couple of times, and he agreed to let me direct the movie. If he had, if he had said no, then somebody else would have done it. But he said yes. So I directed the movie. And this is one good cop. Yeah. What did you think of that, the end product there, the end movie? It was good. It's, it's pretty much uh, the same thing. It's not quite as, it's kind of hung around. People like it. Uh, Michael said people saw him in the airport and tell them how much they like it. Cops have told me it's my favorite movie. You know, it's been around. It, it was my first directing shot. Uh, there's a lot to learn in directing movies. And frankly, I did not... I learned with every movie I did, but it would have been, I didn't learn, I could have kept learning, you know. There's a lot to learn about it, and uh, it's a very interesting kind of process. If you have a good story and a good actor, you can kind of get, you can do okay with it, which I did with Wonder Cop. It was a success in its way. didn't get great reviews, although now it does. So, you know, in the passage of time. I'm not happy with any anything I do, so... Hmm. I just I just look at it, and there are moments here and there that I like, and there are moments that I wish I could have shot over again, and other things as well. So I'm I'm just not happy. I mean, I can't, you know, I I I don't lose any sleep over it, but you know, I don't I don't watch it and 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 you know jump up and down in glee. Yeah, you know, like some people actually do, who I know, who watch <laughs> stuff they've done and go, "Wow, man, isn't this great?" So that's not me. If you could, though, what film or what book, any any piece of work that you've created, what would you say is the Haywood Gould 
the best, the best thing that you've done, in your opinion? You know, I can't say. Uh, I can't judge them. They all, they kind of, I get, while I'm working on them, I'm completely immersed, absorbed in them. And then when, they, when they're done, and uh, whatever happens to them happens, I become kind of removed from them. And I look at them, it's almost as if somebody else did it. I used to make a joke at these uh, interviews, people say, what were you thinking when you wrote this? I'd say, well, I was in a trance when I wrote this. I don't know what I was thinking. Hmm. That was a joke, and, but the truth is, it's kind of true. You get into that world, the world that you're writing about, so completely and totally immersed in it. And then when it's over, it's gone. The moment passes, it's just a, something that you did. You can't even remember. You can't recapture what your thoughts were during the period that you were doing it, that you were writing it. It's just gone, at least for me. What would you say is the best thing about being Haywood Gould? <laughs> Uh, because I'm the only, being Haywood Gould is the only thing Haywood Gould can do, <laughs> obviously. So, you know, kind of stuck with Haywood Gould. That's it. And I can't think of anything that's great about me or that's so terrible about me. I'm just who I am. I'm just that person. I mean, I, the only thing that I can think of really is that I wake up every morning in a good mood. Sometimes that changes very rapidly, and sometimes not. It continues for the whole day. Pretty much, wake up every morning in a good mood, ready to go, whatever is going to be, whatever is going to happen. Other than that, I can't think of any good thing or bad thing about me. I'm just that individual, that person. This is kind of an open-ended question. For anyone who's listening to this interview, what would you say to them? Um, are you still listening? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you have a, you know, you know, I, I hate to, I hate to, I don't, I wouldn't really say anything to them. I don't know what to say. If you found it interesting, good. I'm glad. My last question. How would you define okay. Haywood Gould? Who is Haywood Gould? Who is Haywood Gould? Man, these are like deep questions, baby. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about who Haywood Gould is. Really. So, I couldn't say who Hayward Gould is. Other people will decide what who they think if they want to take the time to think about it. You know, my family, friend, whatever it is. I don't really think a lot about who I am. I mean, professionally, I'm a writer, so that's something I am. And all of the uh, the qualities and the aspects of personality that that are contained in that, I am. The totality of me is just, you know, I don't think a lot about it. So I really can't say who I am, actually. Well, for anyone who wants more information, they can visit the website, heywoodgould.com. That's H-E-Y-W-O-O-D-G-O-U-L-D. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Okay. Thanks for calling me. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I'll never watch cocktail the same way again. Oh, I hope that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I hope I haven't. Okay, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Okay, bye. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. 
the Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Paul Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>